Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today, we talk brainstorms with UX designer Brian. Let's go. First question. You thought you'd see everyone's idea in the team brainstorm, but you've got a grand total of one. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board, right? Because in Miro, the team can add ideas now or later. And with Privacy Mode, we can keep them anonymous until they're good to share. Correct. Next, you need the best way to explain your idea, but all you have is a few sticky notes. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, because, you know, in Miro, I could record videos, add text, images, links, and digital sticky notes, of course, present my thoughts the way I want. Right again! Now, you're looking for a past idea you thought was just genius. Only you could find... Oh, there it is. Drawing board or... Miro. Our finished and unfinished work lives in one place. And he's won. Join over 60 million people getting ideas noticed in Miro Brainstorms. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. O-G. Make some noise! How you doing, everyone? I'm Russ Salzberg, and once again, I want you all to listen up and get a load of this. Being an athlete playing in New York, you not only have to deal with the opponents, you have to deal with the intense scrutiny that comes from both media and fans. And I'm going to speak today with a veteran expert to tell you how it's done the proper way. So stay right where you are, because like I said, you're really going to want to get a load of this. All right, folks, like I said, I, I'm i going to speak with an expert today. Uh, his name is Barry Watkins. Barry's a friend of mine. I've known Barry for 30 years. Um, he did everything at the Garden. I mean, everything at the Garden, from being in charge of communications. I started my friendship with him back at 88 when he was in handling PR communications for for the uh, Rangers. I mean, he did everything. And now uh, he has his own media training company, Clairvoyant Media Strategies. Um, And, you know, the reason I want to speak with Barry is because if you've listened to these podcasts, you know, for lack of a better term, I get pissed off with some of the crap that I read and hear when people are, um, you know, they have agendas. And both pro and con. And it's not just media, it's fans as well. And uh, the landscape certainly has changed over the 30 years that I know, Barry, with social media and tweets and Facebook. And, you know, if you fought the wrong way, everybody seems to find out about it. So having said that, let me welcome Barry Watkins. Barry, thanks for being here, buddy. Thanks, Russ. Thanks for having me. Whoever thought 30 years ago we'd be talking here on a podcast. Yeah, on a podcast. <laughs> and you'd be uh, the, the the head, the president of Clairvoyant Media Strategies. But y- y- listen, we had a bit of a conversation leading up to this today, uh, Barry. And my goodness, the media, well, I shouldn't say, the, the, everything has changed from when I, you know, began over at WWR-TV in 88, just 
everything has changed the way you have to handle teams now compared to when you, for example, when I knew you, you were handling the Rangers. Oh, completely different. I mean, complete, and it's not just sports. I mean, no, no, across, right. across the world, if you think about it, I, I believe in sports, at least in the position I had at MSG for so long, there was two major things that changed the dynamic. The first was, I mean, we, we all grew up and it was basically the newspapers and you guys, you and Warner and Len Berman on the nightly news, right? That's how it went. And then in 87, when FAN came and live sports radio became a thing, that changed the dynamic for two reasons. One is because if you want to get a message out, that was the way to get it out. One. Two is everybody could hear the complete context, right, of what you were going to say. The first time you ever had an opportunity, here are the questions and here are the full answers. No editing by writers, no editing. You have to get something down to get on the newscast that night. And the immediacy of it, right? So all of a sudden, they were analyzing a trade. You weren't waiting until the next day in the newspapers to see what, you know, what happened in a game or a trade that was made. Then, of course, in the most more recent time between websites, social media, blogs, and things like that, now tweeting and Instagram, Facebook, the amount of information that's out so quickly has changed everything. The complete dynamic has changed but really twice in our careers, I think. Yeah, and, and you know, it's it's funny because that's when relationships became frosty with the print media and the electronic media, in particular radio, because TV was different. You know, TV, uh, you know, we can be in a locker room, but, you know, I still, let's say if I got something, and, and one of the reasons I always got along with print guys because they knew I was hustling, getting my own information. You know, but a radio guy could just be able to take the soundbite and get it up on the air. They can call, you know, Mike and a Mad Dog in in 30 seconds and get it up on the air, whereas print, it's not getting up till tomorrow. No, yeah, and you know what? And look, we grew up. I grew up as a Ranger fan in Brooklyn in the in the 70s, and the Rangers beat the Islanders in 79. I couldn't wait to run to the newsstands the next morning. There was no real other way. If you turned on the news that night... You would get, you know, a quick clip, right? Like a quick clip on Channel 4 or Channel 2. But you, your whole lives as a sports fan was to get the newspapers the next day, right? And then it completely changed when all of a sudden people were t- tuning in. Mike and the Mad Dog probably. And I, mean, F- I think FAN started in 87 and they, they got there in 89. I believe so. It completely changed the dynamic. There was a time when you basically set up a press conference to make an announcement, right? So there was a 4 o'clock press conference and you had the whole press conference. And then at 5 o'clock, you brought the participants, whoever they were, onto the Mike and the Mad Dog show, whether they called in or whatever. And now, not only with FAN, with ESPN radio and the shows here and all that, that is a great way to get a message out because it's, it's a conversation, even though there may be some tough questions. But for athletes, for coaches, for anybody in sports, for people to be able to hear the complete question and the complete answer is a huge advantage to somebody doing, uh, doing radio, I think. Right. But here's a difference where, the, you know, you and I sat on, I, I don't want to say different sides of the fence because we always got along, but you came from a different standpoint than I did. You're, you, you, whether it was the Rangers, whether it was the Garden, mm-hmm. uh, what, any shows, like you say, entertainment, whatever, you were there to protect your brand, which was MSG. Not that I was coming to hurt the brand, but I was just interested in the story, whatever it was. If it was a good story, then that was great. That made your life easy. 
if it was a <laughs> half-ass story, oh, here right, comes. Right. No, no, but you understand what I'm saying? So when that when it was a bad story, I don't, you know, what? what, what what's a bad story? Uh a miserable losing. So I'm, I don't. I don't want to talk about really bad things. I'm, well, I'm, just take. Just take a trade. Yeah, just take, yeah, yeah, just take a, trade. a trade. I worked for Phil Esposito as a you know famous famous hockey player. Was the GM of the Rangers. He was known as Trader Phil for three years, right, right. right? And he would make a trade, many many trades over those three years. And it was my job to sell the trade. Right. You know, like even though I was a fan, it didn't matter whether I thought it was a good trade or not. When you work for somebody like that and you work as part of an organization, you're right. My agenda was to extend the brand. If the decision was made, my job was to to facilitate that and to, and to make sure that the messaging was out properly and to talk to media people so they basically understood our reasoning behind the trade. And some, you know, I hate to say the media, right, because the media is made in all different shapes and sizes. But early on in my career, anybody that had an opinion about that trade was somebody you interacted with and had a relationship with. Now, when you make a decision like that, it's impo- there's so much media. How could you possibly have a relationship to have that debate with 150 different outlets, websites and blogs and all that. It's impossible to do it. In a, in a way, it was easier back then because even though you and I may have agreed to disagree, which I, I remember that we did several, right, several times, times, you can have the debate and maybe you'd score a point. Maybe you'd say, look, I still don't like the trade, but at least I sort of understand your point of view. 100%. Right? And, and most people 30 years ago did that because they were coming in the locker room the next day. In many cases, they were on your plane when they were traveling with you. So there was a relationship there that even when you didn't like something in the press, there was a spirited debate. I would defend myself, and they had the right to be able to say and do what they wanted to do. Now, with the amount of media, I think it's impossible to go to go at every website. Many who, of whom don't really cover games; they're not around the team ever. Cover games? You know, just, I, I just, mean, you know, somebody's grandma decides to put out a tweet that seriously that they don't like somebody, or this is a lousy thing, and all of a sudden it gets legs and. I said this to you when we were talking earlier. Uh, you can be in a newsroom, be it radio, TV, or print, any one of the three, and a producer or an editor sees a tweet. Did you see this? You, you know they're going to trade. Um, they're going to trade uh, Aaron Judge for a, a bucket of balls. Is this legit? You go go follow the story, and you're chasing your tail because. That's what social media, uh, the tail wags the dog right now as far as I'm concerned. And, and I will tell you, from my end, that was amazingly frustrating because of what happened is, you know, you have your day planned. And part of my day was always reacting and responding to issues that went on, you know, <laughs> whether I was in the office or on vacation or at dinner. You know, issues came on around MSG all the time and you had to, you know, spring into action a lot. But the amount of times where somebody wrote or said something, tweeted something, and it was sourced, and you never knew. Some sources, oh, source. are, some sources are really, you know, you read and go, holy crap, like they really knew something. And sometimes it's like, where did they come up with somebody? They spoke to somebody who was just guessing or just literally made it up. But it didn't matter because what happened is all of a sudden between my phone ringing in the office, emails and text, it, I would have 100 messages asking me to respond to what was just tweeted out about a potential trade or something like that. So while you had somebody saying, hey, find out if this is true or not, we had, and then we had to figure out how we wanted to respond every time. And it's not just so easy to say, we're not going to comment, not going to comment, not going to comment. 
every time something comes in. So it really changed the dynamic, not just for the media, but for the people on the other side. And it still does today. Uh, now, how is it f- for you, Barry? And like, I- I'll give you an example. You mentioned Espo before. Okay. Uh, when I got here, I, I loved Espo. One of the great characters ever. No, a, a, a character. He was kind of like me and in your face guy. If you don't like what I got to say, blow it out your ear. But he was that kind of guy. I'm drawing a blank. Who was the, his coach? It used to be with the Nordiques, too, a French. Oh, Michel Bergeron. Michel Bergeron. Yeah. And I remember being up at the, at Rye. You're laughing. I remember being up at Rye. And at the practicing rink, you know, the practice rink, and I said, you know, so, you know, Phil, uh, what's the deal with you and Michelle? Like, are you guys battling? Do you not get along? Because you remember. And, and he looked, I remember it well. <laughs> he looked at me, he goes, Russ, you married? I go, yeah. You're telling me you don't argue with your wife now and then? Yeah, we get along, but we have fights too. Oh, yeah. But he was straight up, and you know what? It was endearing to me. But I remember being in my car, you know, with the cameraman going back. I said, and this was back then, before all this crap started to happen. This was back then. I said, but that's how you handle the story. Instead of you know being snarky and pissed off, he was straight up. He he said, yeah, this is how it is. You know, there was some seriousness to it, and he made light of it, and I thought that was great. Now, I'll give you another example of the reverse, which I thought. I'll never forget the Rangers. Were, you were already you were already handling. I don't think you were handling the Rangers any longer. It was a playoff game. Yeah. No, it was after they won the Cup. It was after they won it. It was a playoff game uh, series. They were playing the Penguins. And I remember because I had arranged, uh, remember, God love him, Pierre LaRouche. He, oh, one of the all-time, character. all-time great guys. Great guys. And this, Pierre was, you know, he wasn't with the Rangers anymore, but he, I got friendly with him through some golfing, and he got me this great sit-down interview with um, Mario. Mario. Yeah, he's Mario very Lemieux. friendly with Mario. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so I was hanging around down there, kind of organizing it, that I was going to do it after the game. But there was Neil Smith, and he had an article that something was written from the Times. Okay, there was Neil Smith. And I, I, I got along great with Neil. But there was Neil Smith from the Times and um, w- w- with this the Times in his hand, and he's talking to the d- different people. He's showing, see, this is wrong. You guys, you guys ought to attack and th- this and that. <laughs> and I'm saying to myself... Jeez, you guys are playing. You got a playoff game tonight against Mario Lemieux and the Pittsburgh Penguins, and you're worried about what some cockamamie things written in the newspaper, right or wrong. You got your focus in the wrong place. You know, people well, hand, pan, people, hand, and I love Neil, but people handle things. Everything. Look, and I look, and over my thirty-five years, thirty-four plus years at the Garden, I I dealt with. I mean, everybody you can imagine that was there, and they then, and I will tell you. Generally, when most people are written about, they care about what that is said, whether it's the New York Times or some website. And part of my job was to say, look, I don't you never wanted them to Phil Esposito to say to me. And Phil, by the way, Phil was as sensitive as any of them. But the fact of the matter is, is my job was if they were spoken about on the radio or written about my job, I would like to have thought I work with Neil Smith 
for six years. And a lot of those times it was me going to the reporter and saying, hey, I don't think this was particularly fair. I don't think this was balanced. I think this may have been agenda based. That's what we did for a living to protect our people. Like you, you hated when somebody had to do it themselves because that felt like you weren't really doing your job as well. But I will say there's a few exceptions but most of the people I've been around, think about the athletes, the executives, every level, sports and non-sports. Most people, when they when they either pick up a newspaper or now see something on a website, maybe a website they've never even heard of, if somebody is unfairly critical of them, well, then they, they're not. There's not many people out there that are just going, ah, oh, that's no big deal. They want to know who, what the website is, who who wrote it, why this, what is their agenda, and understand it. If it's not legitimate criticism, look, you know, you also every organization in sports and everywhere else, there's some form of legitimate criticism. Like you look at football this year, you know, both teams are not doing well, and I'm sure the PR people understand there that there's a legit, there's some legitimate criticism comes with failing to meet expectations, right? But that's not that that's the easy, that's the low hanging fruit. Right. The stuff that I used to focus on was much more wasn't about wins and losses and all that. I'll tell you a funny story, by the way. Let me. You talked about Espo and Bergeron. He gave those great answers, right? Until we fired Berge. With two games to go in the 1989 season, we did it in Pittsburgh. Phil and I flew to Pittsburgh, and we fired him on April 1st. It was it was April Fool's Day, and we saw all the reporters in the in the old igloo in Pittsburgh right. as we walked in. And Bergie Bergie essentially left the team hotel that was across the street, got there first, and he told the players that he had just been fired, and then he told all the reporters. So Phil and I walk in. We don't know that we think we're announcing it. And the reporters are all thinking that we, that somebody made this up, this whole scheme, because it was April first, April Fool's Day, and I had to tell him. I had to tell him. I'm like, oh, not exactly true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happened. That's wild. Two games to go, and Phil went behind the bench. Since we're talking, since we're talking about it, just because it, we happen to be talking about a, you know a couple of hockey names here, the one guy who was best at handling it. In terms of having the thickest skin, I'm not saying he's the most caught was the most cordial to everybody. I, I've always had a terrific relationship with him, Lou Lamarillo. You could say whatever you want. His, his, his he was not concerned. He was concerned about only one thing that was winning, and you know making sure the organization organization was run intact. In fairness, though, Lou. And I will say this, Lou's always been consistent. I mean, when he went, people forget, he also was in charge of the um, Nets for two years. They went to the finals both years. Yeah, yeah. He went up to Toronto, helped turn that around, and I'm sure he's going to do the same thing with, with the Islanders. But in fairness, the Devils, and I always said this, the Devils, um, well, well let, me, let me backtrack a little bit. The Rangers and the Knicks, I always said this. I use the term squatter's rights. The, <laughs> I never heard that term. No, no, I, I oh, that's your it. term. That's just my term. And when I say squatter's rights, they were here first. The, hockey in this town gets dictated by the success of the Rangers. I firmly believe that. When the Rangers are flying high, everybody gets revved up. More so than when it was the Devils or the Islanders back in the day. The Knicks, God bless the Knicks, they continue to draw and, and, and this and that. But you, you know what I'm saying? But but it's if it's between the Knicks and the Nets, and I love both of them, 
But you, you understand yeah. what I, I'm I don't saying? Think, so, yeah, of course. Yeah, I don't so, think I don't, I don't think there's anybody that that would would know the job that I had of over. And remember, it's not, my my role at MSG was. You know, it was the Radio City Rockettes and yeah, it was form yeah. and it was it was lots of different things. But at least for people that knew me on the sports side, I don't think anybody goes, oh, that was an easy job because the Knicks and Rangers, I mean, every day there there's something. I mean, <laughs> it's like, no, I mean, you people care. You know what? What the Knicks haven't haven't had that much success. Oh, I didn't say it was an easy job they, for you. I, I, I'm, but, I'm just saying the scrutiny. Yeah, but that's but that's what yeah, makes yeah, it different right, right. than than others. And look, and there's no. I don't think there's any. When you're the head of communications, what pick any, especially in New York, you pick any team. It's not an easy position, especially when you have expectations and you don't meet them. Right. Your, your role with the team is to try to say, okay, have relationships to try to sort of stand up for your organization, balance it out, and really, and that's where my 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 new thing comes with media training is. To limit the distractions. See, that's one thing we haven't really talked about is when you have a distraction on a team, it doesn't help the team win, right? It doesn't help no. the team win to say if if player X went out and other than the Yankees of the 70s that seemed to thrive off of the, the, the Bronx Zoo mentality and one player said something about the other and Billy Martin was at that one. And I was just a kid to, to remember that much. Most organizations, like, the way that they set it up now is they monitor the sleep, they monitor what they eat. Every little thing, every moment of practice, everything in their lives is regimented, all with the idea of let's give, give ourselves the best chance to win, right? The last thing you want to do is have an uncontrolled distraction come in where all of a sudden, instead of focusing on practice and the game, you know, you open the locker room and you're flooded with questions about, you know, why did Odell Beckham say this? What did he really mean? Did he go after the coach or not? Let, right? let, let me interject there for a second because you brought up Odell. I'm at the Giants every day. The one thing, you know, Odell's had his moments supplying some drama, some of it own fault, some of it not his fault. But some of the stuff that gets put out there, oh, they ought to get rid of him. He's a distraction in the locker room. I can tell you this firsthand. His teammates don't like him. They love him. He's the hardest by far. He's the hardest working guy on the team. You know, so... What I'm, but what, what I'm saying is, but when that perception gets put out there, and then as you right. said before, with social media and this and that, it becomes a light. It takes on a life of its own, and right. you almost can't stop it. Right. It's like and, a runaway freight right. train. I'm right. sorry. Exactly. No, no. And my point isn't like I don't know anything about Odell other than watching no, the just, games no. and all that. But my point is, I believe where I sit that when you have you make pub, public comments that are very controversial, right? Whether you were taken out of context, whether you meant to say them or not. You now have, and maybe sometimes it acts as a motivator. I've found that most times bringing a distraction into the locker room, meaning you've said something publicly, now your coach has to deal with it, your quarterback has to deal with it, every player in the roster has to answer to it, right? To me... The, you're better off not, if you can, to help, to avoid the distraction, to make sure your focus is always on winning. I'm not making it, you know, I'm not saying, and maybe that, in, in what he said, you know better than me, was motivating in the room. I'm saying nine times out of ten, when somebody says something publicly, whether they were taken out of context, whether they meant to say something, the idea is that you've got to think about what does that do to the rest of the team? Like, do, do they really need that extra burden of now having to answer you know, to um, to uh, this controversy that they're not even involved in. You know, 
All right, so let me ask you this. Have you sat down, and this I always felt was a gray area, a, a difficult area for people in your position, regardless of what team you were with. You know who are the easy guys, who are your best guys, and you know which guys can be difficult, okay? Um, I'll get, let me try and give you an example. Mark Messier, to me, was an easy guy to deal with. Patrick, God love him, Ewing, was not. Doesn't make him a bad guy, but, but you know, Patrick wasn't comfortable with the media. Uh, uh, Mark Messier was. You sit down with guys sometimes to say almost, I'm just using examples. It could be anybody. Let me reason with you. You know, you can make life easier for yourself if you did X, Y, and Z as opposed to A, B, and C. I'm sure. Yeah, I did, of course. And I think I would guess that all people in the positions that I was in do that regularly. You know, like I'm sure I wasn't with the Knicks when Patrick played for the Knicks. Right. I was with the Rangers. And Mess just got it. He didn't, you know, Mess yeah. got it. He didn't need. But no, I mean, we went beginning of every Ranger season when I was there. And we spoke openly. I, I spoke in front of the team back in, you know, 89. And we had general conversations as a group about media and about avoiding distractions and about cooperating and building relationships. And ultimately, if you had a problem with somebody, come to me and let me handle it. You do not show thin skin. You have other things to worry about. Let me handle it. And I can't, that's countless times where a player or somebody came to me and it was my role to do that. Or it would be, they didn't even have to come to me. You know, I would go to that reporter and say, look, person X hasn't said anything, but I didn't think that was fair. I didn't think that was right. And then you go to the player sometimes who had, you know, sort of a chip on their shoulder about the press or whatever. And you would explain, you know, in the old days, you know, I think, I think even when I first started, I started in 83, the early 80s. The press person was almost seen as an intermediary between the press and the organization. I think as time went on, I think my job was for the organization. Sure. And yeah, and yes, I would say, hey, there's a benefit to that. But you'd oftentimes, you know, I remember when Phil Esposito, Phil Esposito had an issue with a reporter at the Post by the name of Mark Everson. And I love both yeah, of them. Sure. They're good, good guys. Yeah, and Mark was a great Mark. guy. Yes. And uh, they, for whatever reason, they just couldn't get along. And I spoke to each of them individually, and then finally, like, they both agreed to go into a room, and they went into a room together, and they felt really good about it, and I think they felt like they both got some things off their chest, and, and it did. It got, you know, it got, to, it got to a point that Phil thought it was personal. Mark said, this isn't personal. This is, your results aren't very good. You know, and that, that's a common thing that people have, right? Um, that, argue, that argument is very common, and uh, and it went great. And then two days later, Mark wrote something that Phil didn't like, and it was back to like I just I just completely wasted I just completely completely wasted wasted my time. But you, you, it wasn't it wasn't my job was to go. And yet, and the answer to your question is yes. You would speak to people all the time about certain media people, and oftentimes if you felt like you you had the meeting with the media person and it was just going to be what it was going to be, then you just had to say, look, well, now it's like, well, I, I can't give you the same access. I can't, you can't have the same relationship with the team because it's gotten to that agenda-based reporting and it's, it's just too personal. But you'd always try to figure something out before it got there. Yeah, see, to me, where I, I think the media sometimes uh, and c can be, listen, I am a fan of the media because I'm a member of the media. But I think it's changed uh, since I got into it, my, my, I began in it up in Toronto in 1984, 
and I got here in 88. Um, I, I almost find, you know, back in the day, we had to hustle more to get ours, our stories. And whether it was hanging out at up at Rye, the practice area, or up at Purchase for the Knicks, or whatever, or, or hanging out at Giant Stadium, or the batting cage at Shea or Yankee Stadium, people seem to hustle more for their own stories as opposed to, I might be wrong, Barry, I find because the media, the structuring, and it's become so important, an important part of a coach's jobs and, and the player's responsibilities, it's almost made easier for some of, for reporters of print, electronic, whatever, that, and some of them expect the story to be almost given to them. Well, why didn't we know about this? Why didn't we know about that? Where I was hanging out in parking lots chasing down people, but that's how we all got our stories. Right, and I'm, right. I'm, believe me, I wasn't alone. I remember all the beat writers, everybody was, you know, we were like scampering around. Now it's like we got, whether it's up in Greenberg now, you, you know, it's controlled access. It's con- controlled, controlled access. access, right? I mean, and I think, and I think actually in, in some, if you think about it, in some ways, it, the media, uh, their, their jobs have gotten harder. That's how I view it. When you're in the press. I'll give you my view. Go ahead. Is that, you know, the, the, you used to get rewarded, right? You get rewarded with an exclusive story because you hustle, right? You got over yes, the years, yeah, right? You would hustle and, and you would get exclusive stories. You'd find somebody to say something to you or talk. You track down a story, right? Now it's harder because you don't have all that much ability to do that. You may, you may work your butt off and be, be sourced, certainly not for all, in all of sports, right? Maybe a specific sport, but basically all of the, uh, the access. So you're asking questions in front of all, in, in front of everybody, right? That's number one. Then add in the amount of media we just talked about when we started in the business and we got to know each other. It was local news and four or five tabloid or the times and some tabloids. That was that, it. That, that was it, right? Now, when you look at somebody trying to stand out and they have bosses too. I had bosses at MSG. Sure. They have bosses with you had a program director uh, and they have, director, they have they have sports editors, right? And they're mad. So if, if a beat writer is beaten on a story 30 years ago because the news had something that the post didn't have, that's a bad day for the post beat reporter because they're, you know, everybody's talking about the news exclusive. Now, with the advent of websites and blogs and Twitter feeds and, and, the, and the rest of it, it's really, really hard to stand out and, and get something that nobody else has. I, I, that's a very good point. I agree with you on that wholeheartedly. However, and my however is this, I think because of that, and that's a very fair point and valid that you make, Barry, because of that, people today, because of that pressure uh, of trying to have something to break, because of that, they're more concerned about being first than being right. Right. And that sucks. <laughs> that, that, no, no, right, right. that's bad. Right. I mean, no, I agree. We agree with each other. Like, look, that, and that was the idea of now, you know, it used to be where you'd have a very uh, story that was well sourced, that it was checked on, you know, that it was it, you got you got a chance to call somebody for a chance to respond to it. Now, I can't tell you how many times now you tweet it out because you have to put it's almost like putting your stake in the ground. That's now my story. I've tweeted it out. If it's true. All the better. 
But if it's not true, well, then it'll just go away. Remember, it's different too. like the levels of accountability. I can tell you at MSG, everything we did, we had accountability for everything we did. One loss record and how th- how things went. You made a move and how it went. You know, media, not that they're not accountable internally, but if they say, think about it over the years, if they said, you know, in 1995, the Rangers or the Knicks were going to trade this person and it didn't happen. There's no report card that comes back a month later and say, hey, well, this person said this trade was going to happen and it didn't happen. So what happens? No, nothing happens. Like they keep writing and that's the way it is. That's the nature of the, the nature of the business. And the really good reporters, you know, there's a few now that really focus on specific sports that I read that I, I really sort of admire and think they're really well sourced. Most of the stuff they say is true. Not all of it's true, but that's even more troubling because if they have some of it is true, if they're not right. Everybody believes that they are right because they had enough enough true. Well, you know? y- yeah, and, and and what bothers me though when people get it wrong, like, like I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I uh, let let's say I, I don't know, I made a prediction on a game, and, and boy was I wrong, you know, uh, l- l- whatever it was. Uh, you know, let's say this past weekend. I made a prediction that the Redskins were going to whack the Giants, but <laughs> the Giants made me look like a silly ass. Instead of coming on and saying, boy, was I a putz, that they take care of business, you try and cut. Like, people don't admit their mistakes either. That, to me, in the past, I would see that. I don't see that anymore. In fact, I see the littlest thing people try and validate. This tray was going to come, or this guy wasn't the first choice to be the coach. But I, my source says, what are you talking about? You, right, you, right, you know? right. Well, because uh, and, and, the, excuse me, well, yeah. uh, you, you know, I'll give you two instances at the Garden. You know, I'm, I'm just giving you an example of the media. Uh, one was Larry Brown. One was Phil Jackson. When both guys arrived. Oh, and you know what? I'll, I remember when Calipari arrived with the Nets. I'll give you three. Each one was a coronation. Each one was a coronation. The media, of which I'm included, loved it. I thought it was great. I, I thought all three moves were spectacular. You ha- And everybody was applauding it. They were writing about it, talking about it. The minute it went south... <laughs> they effed up again. Oh, you know, they can't shoot themselves. They can't get it right. And you see, to me, that's what I talk about unfairness. You can't have it both ways. If I'm praising Barry Watkins for being terrific, and then there was a screw up tomorrow, well, I can't say you're a bum. Say, okay, this didn't work out, but. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. But that's the. I mean, look, I, I understand because I, I remember all of those events, right? Even the Calipari one, I remember very, very well. And of course, but that's the nature of the business. You know, teams have off-season press events. They acquire a player. They name a new manager. They name a new general manager or whatever. And people have an opinion of it. And when you go out and get somebody who has had tremendous success in their past, Larry, Phil, John Calipari, it is almost universally applauded, right? Because you went out and you spent the money and you got the best person out there for the position. And then circumstances change, results aren't what, and what, but what happens in those situations, Russ, I'll tell you something that you didn't mention is they bring expectations up, right? When Larry Brown 
um, not to get too much into the MSG stuff, but when, when Larry Brown became the Knicks coach, I don't think the Knicks were viewed as a very, very good team if you look at their personnel. But all of a sudden, the magic of Larry Brown was going – it lifted expectations – into the stratosphere. Yes, it did. Right? And all of a sudden, I think we ended up with maybe 23 wins or 26 wins or something that year. And it's like, oh, well, oh my God. Well, you know what? Because that's what happens when you bring in some of these people. You win the press conference, and all of a sudden it doesn't go that way. Now you get the opposite reaction. People are angry because they expected they, – they did not expect a step in a process. They expected immediate results. You know, the higher the higher you go in the you know, you bring in Phil Jackson, and you're expecting, OK, this is just going to be miraculous overnight. And when it doesn't happen, but that's the nature of the business. You know, the nature of the business is, you know, you're, when you when you're in sports teams or even in business, you're, you're judged on results. And people understand that Phil Esposito understood that at the end of the day, that year when he fired Michelle Bergeron, we lost in the playoffs. We got swept in four games. And you know what? The press wasn't very good. And even if people applauded him firing Michelle Bergeron that day, which they didn't, but just say they did, it doesn't matter because you ended up losing the next, I think, two regular season games that were left and four in the playoffs and you lost. And the nature of the business is, you know, as Bill Parcells used to say, right, you are what your record record says says you you are. are. And that's the business you're in. So it's hard to sort of not whine about it, but it's hard to not see it for what it is, which is, you know, and look, this the idea of going back to long before we were in the business, this push and pull between sports organizations or in some cases, even companies and the media that covers them. That's always going to be an interesting dynamic because the the, the organization is going to expect coverage one way. You know, in the old days, when I first started, they let media people on planes after games. Sure. They traveled well, with us on planes uh, as you expected great coverage because you had this amazing relationship. And then all of a sudden you don't get the coverage you want. And there they are on the plane, you know, in the old days smoking a cigarette on the plane, too, sure. with all the athletes. And But that's, that's just the nature of the business. And that's why part of what I've started with the new media trading company is to say, hey, here's, here's some ways that you can, be, you can use the media and deal with the media in a more advantageous way, especially in the changing dynamic of what now is so much set on social, social media. And on the positive side for people like this is controlling your own message. They didn't have that years ago. The idea that they can write a story, LeBron James decides this is the way I'm going to announce that I'm going back to Cleveland from Miami. I'm going to write a story with the help of Lee Jenkins of Sports Illustrated, put it in Sports Illustrated, exactly what I want to say about my decision, have no availability, no press conference, and that's the only message that I've got. That didn't exist. I mean, Sports Illustrated existed, but the idea of that didn't of exist that. years ago. Right? You, you brought up something. Let me ask you this. Uh, 35 years at the Garden, You've had a lot of friends get hired and a lot of friends get fired. In my, you know, my job, same deal. I find that tough. I, I you know, that I, I'll, I've never been accused of being a softy. You know, I can hammer somebody with the best of them, but I've only really called for somebody's job once, and that was Ray Hanley because I just thought he was in way over his head, but. You know, for a guy like yourself who who worked or works so close with people over the years, how tough was that for you personally when you knew you knew and then it happened people were going to lose their jobs? Yeah, it, it was always I always thought, especially you know, early in my career when I was with the Rangers and I was so connected. I mean, I was with the team every day, yeah. and um, and I will say that that's arguably one of the 
toughest parts of the Ugh. business. You know, like I'd be in, in other parts of my life. I would see a buddy I grew up with. I used to play roller hockey in Brooklyn, right? And I would see one of my buddies at a game and they'd say to me, X person, oh, he should be fired. He sucks. And you'd want to say, wait, this is my friend you're talking about, you know? And it was hard because to do your job well and to protect and work with the people and to advise them and counsel them. I mean, the worst I've ever had was Roger Nielsen. If you remember, Roger sure. was a Ranger coach and, and passed away too early. I, I knew Roger from working with him up in Toronto. Yeah, Ro- Roger, you know, I went up. My, my life at the Rangers during the season was I left my house in Brooklyn or Long Island. I drove up to Rye, you know, an hour and a half, and then I would go and handle practice and set up all the interviews. Then I would do Roger's interview with the press, and then Roger and I would go have go have lunch, usually at Boston Chicken. That was his spot. <laughs> and then I would get in my car, and I would drive back to the garden and to my office at the garden. And Roger and I were particularly close. I mean, he one time we came out to my house and spent the day with us, and another time we drove to Brooklyn because I was always talking about it, and we went to all the different neighborhoods in Brooklyn and the rest of it. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, we go into a, a bad losing streak around uh, Christmas time or whatever year that ninety ninety three, I think it was ninety no ninety two ninety two ninety three season. That was the year the Rangers were going to miss the playoffs the year before that we won the cup, and it was excruciating. I mean, it was excruciating. And plus, it's like you, what happens is you get the call and they say, "Hey, we're we're going to make this change." And all of a sudden, you know information, and here's Roger, my buddy, and obviously I can't share that information and say, oh, by the way, Roger, tomorrow night's your last game. But it puts you in an awful position, and uh, it's something I never, ever enjoyed. I mean, as, I, as, as the years went on and I took on the role of overseeing all of communications, you know, there were coaches and general managers I, I really got to know well, but it was never quite as difficult as when you're day-to-day with a team. Yeah, no, no, I, I would think it, it would be difficult. I know last year, for example, um, when all, you know, Giants had a 3-13 and season and Ben McAdoo, you know, was going to get fired. And then when it happens, you know, some people, I don't relish anybody losing their job because, you know what, it could happen to you, it could happen to me. But, you know, in football, again, I'm there every day. And in football, uh, you, you know, there's like 20 assistants. So when a head coach and a general manager are going, that means 20 guys and 20 families were coming up at the holiday time are going to be looking for employment. You know, and right. the, like, for example, the offensive and, and defensive coordinators, you know, uh, Sully, Mike Sullivan and, and Steve Spagnola Spags, you know, I was friendly with them and, you know, they're losing their jobs. And, and, right. That sucks. I'll tell you, I'll tell you both sides of that. One is, Fans don't care. No, they Meaning, don't. They, they, and, and a lot of the media care less. Care when they're less chanting, either. you know, pick whatever team and they're chanting oh, or whatever, oh, yeah. that, that's one thing. And I will tell you, I will tell you, most of the people in my situation, they sort of, it, again, I dealt with a lot of this on the executive side too. It wasn't just sports related. But on the sports side, generally, the people taking the positions know what they sign up for. So the 20 assistant coaches oh, right and it's never easy it's, to go through but it's not like it's not like a i would say i've been a part of that on the non-sports side and arguably that's more challenging because those people they didn't sign up for it no they, they're, they're not expecting that c- coaches are hired to be fired these other people 
it doesn't come with their uh, job description, right. if you will. Right, and, and you and you know that. I remember, you know, I remember like I, I don't, I haven't talked to him in a while, but Mike D'Antoni, you know, Mike D'Antoni was coming up at the end of his contract, and you know, it didn't really work out, and he he sort of got the sense that he wasn't going to get renewed, and he, you know, a couple of months to go in the season, he he resigned before, you know, it sort of made the decision, and he was like, he just sort of got it. He goes, look, I'm a coach, like that's you know, I'm a coach, and that's what I, and it was sad. He really liked it in New York, and I think he, but you know, he he just sort of got it. And said, you know, if I, I'll get another job and it, it'll be it'll be okay. Um, but that's you know, it's 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 this different. I don't think fans ever really quite understand the the way that some of these coaches think. Now think about any any person out there who takes a job, and then the average span, depending on the league, is you know two to four years. I mean, who takes a job? They go into the, especially in New York, they go right into the the line of fire. Fans, media, and the rest of it, only to know, only to know, only to know that you know they're high. Like you said, they're hired to be to be fired, yeah. and it's a very different mindset than anybody else in life. And it's not just just go. It goes for you know for general managers and 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 coaches and, and everybody of that of that ilk. Before I get on to your new company, Clairvoyant uh, Media Strategies, I, you know, I want to ask you this. You know, there's the old uh, your job is to help your people get the best possible press coverage that they can get, you know, where they're looked on in a positive light. You ever need to find the need to explain to certain people, though, listen, you're never as bad as they say you are, but you're also never as wonderful as they say (laughs) you are. Don't fall in love with yourself and your press clippings or these stories. But because some people get, you know this, and the egos are out of control, they get wrapped up in themselves. Do you have to Yeah, of course. Again, but you remember, like, depending on who it is, like, you know, if you work for somebody, you hopefully build enough credibility with them where you can have a conversation. And ultimately, if they don't agree, well, then... You know, you go and do what they ask you to do in those situations, right? But yeah, of course, of course, like people don't always understand criticism. Some more than some more than others. Some respond to it differently. And you know, you look. I dealt with dozens of people over my thirty-four, thirty-five years, and they come in all shapes and sizes. But your job is always to counsel them on, you know, is, is this fair? And I can't tell you any conversation in my in my career where somebody said, I don't think this is fair. And I'm like, well, let's let's take a look at this because you know what? I think that this is a little more fair than you think, of course. But then if they don't agree with me, I'll go and say, all right, well, now I'm going to go talk to that media person and, and try to solve this if I, if I can. All right, well, look, you, you, we, we know all about your career at the Garden and everything. Tell us a little bit about, you know, this is a new venture for you, and obviously – you're, you're equipped to do it, Clairvoyant Media Strategies. What's it all about? And, um, you, you know, who, if you can tell us who are some of your clients or how's that, how's yeah. the company all working I, it, out? It's good. Well, I just launched in October, so right, I can't, so it's, okay. you know, it's a confidentiality thing where I can't discuss the clients that I've got so far and the ones I'm working on, but it's a, it's a really cool thing. What I did was I sl- I call it a slowdown period. I slowed down from MSG, which was a, you know, it seemed like two full-time jobs. It was, you know, on call all the time and all the action that was taking place, um, you know, not just in the arena, but in the forum. And we owned a piece of towel and lots of stuff that was going on. Um, so what I did was I slowed down. And now instead of just saying, okay, I'm going to look for my next gig somewhere, I broke it down and said, I still, we, we helped create the Garden of Dreams Foundation at MSG. 
uh, back in, in 2005. I'm still the chairman of that foundation where they do an amazing job for kids in New York. So you're still involved with the Garden. Well, yeah, with the Garden of Dreams, for sure. And I still advise here and there. I, good. I worked there 34 years. My friendships with everybody from Jim Dolan on down are, are always going to be there. I do that. I work at a PR firm one day a week. Dan Cloris. I don't know if you know Dan Sure, Cloris. I know Dan. Dan Cloris, and it's run by, now it's run I'll by... I'll tell you him. what, thing, out of college, my daughter's first job was with Dan. One oh, that's great, yeah. Well, Cloris. now that company, Dan owns it. It's run by a guy named Sean Cassidy, who's a tremendous guy, and I go in there, and I'm of counsel, and I work once a week, and that's been tremendous, because I never worked at a firm before. I use firms, right. but watching them hustle, and a really talented group of people, and they have offices all over the country, that's been great. But the, the main thing I'm working on is, like you said, the clairvoyant media strategies. And one of the things we did at MSG is we always trained everybody that dealt with the press was professionally media trained by somebody from the outside, right? So Rockettes and players and coaches and executives and everybody who dealt with the press. And over time, I, I really enjoyed that part of the business and ended up doing a lot of the sessions myself. And what it does, it basically gives you the, the what to do and don't do in dealing with the media. And now it's adjusted over time to include social media as well. And when you see some of the issues that people have, both in and out of sports and their whole careers, you know, the CEOs that misspoke and they're not CEOs anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Think about how many mistakes are made. Look at, look at Roseanne Barr. You know, she sends out one tweet with these crazy things that she thinks and her whole world is changed. And not just for her, but all of her castmates and, and, and her company and, and the rest of it. And what I've done is I used to love doing the media training sessions. And I decided as part of my next phase of my career, I was going to make a business out of it. Terrific. And I was going to work with CEO, everybody from athletes to CEOs to executives and talk about best practices for dealing with the press. And there's some good people out there that do it, but I think with my experiences and the things that I sure. watched over time, and I think that when you see every day you could pick up pick up any paper, you'll almost always see some situation where somebody tweeted something out they shouldn't have tweeted, they got fined. Somebody lost their job because of something that they said the wrong way. I mean, you look at even people that are very good at it. I use an example in my training with Bill Clinton. Arguably, in our lifetime, Bill Clinton is among the best communicators, right? Best communicators. He went and did a Today Show interview in, I think it was late June, to promote a book with James Patterson that they had wrote, a fiction book. And twenty, it was a 22-minute interview. And 15 minutes after the host talking about how great the book is and who came up with the idea and who wrote this and who wrote that and how, how real to life is it and all that, all of a sudden, 15 minutes in, the question becomes, well, if you were president today with this Me Too movement and the Monica Lewinsky thing happened, you know, and all of a sudden Bill Clinton answers a hypothetical question. He's not president today, so why he got into it. He didn't seem at least prepared for that line of questioning doing the book tour. And And he should have been. And so that's my point. If Bill Clinton, who again, to me, is like this amazing, amazing communicator, if Bill Clinton's going to, rule number one in any media training, pick any media trainer, and they're going to tell you somewhere in the presentation don't answer a hypothetical. There's never anything gained by answering a hypothetical. And the question was, what if you were president today? And he went right in and answered it and then didn't seem to have his, his messaging and his talking points. So here, instead of – so he did – the full interview was 22 minutes. 
nobody remembered the first 15 minutes that was about the book. It was all about if you if you read the papers the next day, it wasn't about, hey, he's got this great book out with James Patterson. It was all about what he said about Monica Lewinsky. So and again, even if he didn't he didn't say anything wrong, but sometimes it's if you have a thought, part of the training is maybe this isn't the place to say it because you've got a, there's a reason you're doing the Today Show and the Today Show is to promote your book. So now you didn't get the book promotion you wanted. You got a whole different controversy. And sometimes that's the point is, you know, when do you say something? When do you control your own message? And when do you not? Just like we talked about social media, in some cases, taking on a life of its own. There's also an advantage to public figures to be able to get their message out without having to worry about you going and interviewing them for five minutes and picking the 10 seconds that you want to put on the newscast that night, right? So there's an advantage to that as well. And the training basically takes them through how to use it and work with it most effectively for you individually. We don't really tell people what to say. That's not what the training is. No, I, I tell you what, that's interesting point. And, and yeah, it's a great example with Clinton. Now, to me, uh, just because of, like you say, the history with, with Lewinsky, if you're a if Barry Watkins and clairvoyant uh, media strategies are handling uh, Clinton, I'm thinking, and this is because I know you, Bill, you're my client. Listen, this is part of your history. You always have to be prepared for this answer. Whether you talk, I understand what you just said, Barry. Don't answer in hypotheticals. Uh, uh, but either way, you have to be always prepared for this. Whenever you go on TV, whenever you stand in front of microphones, this is part of your history. It's not the best part of your history, so you better be prepared how to handle it. Fair enough? Of course. And I, and I believe that any good, solid communications person is doing that. Like there's, I think if you're a good communications person in the NBA, you're walking a coach to the podium after a game and you're giving them what questions may come Right. You don't have to necessarily tell them the answers, but they've just coached a game. Right. Right. And they're not thinking about right. that. And you are giving them, hey, here are the four or five. I did it. I did it when I was a kid with the Rangers. I did it with Roger. I did it with Keenan. I did it with Bergeron. A lot of the people we mentioned. And that's part of what a good communications person does is to anticipate and think through in advance. Don't tell them what to say unless they ask, but to think through in advance, what do you want to say on these topics? And I used to pride myself when my people did interviews that they were not surprised by any question that came because we talked about it in advance. Well, I, I can say this. I'm, I'm sure I'm not saying it because Barry Watkins, folks, is sitting with me. But he's an expert, not just in in the media business, but he's an expert in the media business here in New York. <laughs> and that's a whole other beast. So, uh, Barry, always a pleasure. But th to me, this was like a schmooze like I did in the old days with uh, Steve Summers <laughs> on a family. Well, being compared to Steve Summers, that's not something I would have. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, you've got your sweater on like yes, the old days, right? And you, I like that sweater, Barry. Oh, yes. Steve's a great guy. Thanks, my friend. Thank, Thank you. you. That's uh, Barry Watkins. My thanks to Barry for being part of this. And, folks, I want to thank all of you for getting a load of this. Now I'd like to get a load of you. Let me know your thoughts on my conversation today with Barry here. You can uh, contact me on Twitter at Russ Salzberg, on Facebook. Uh, you can also check out my blogs on my website, russsalzberg.com. My thanks to the big boy across the way, Crash, a.k.a. Mike Caragliano, to my 77 WABC program director, Craig Schwab. 
his assistant program director, Matt Dahl, uh, Tim Einenkel, the OG podcast producer who puts this get a load of this together, and as always, use guys and ladies out there, because without use guys, I'd have nobody here to talk to. So until next week, it is Russ Salzberg saying have a good one and bye-bye, so long, and farewell. To another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today we talk brainstorms with UX designer Brian. Let's go. First question. You thought you'd see everyone's idea in the team brainstorm, but you've got a grand total of one. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board, right? Because in Miro, the team can add ideas now or later. And with privacy mode, we can keep them anonymous until they're good to share. Correct. Next, you need the best way to explain your idea, but all you have is a few sticky notes. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, because, you know, in Miro, I could record videos, add text, images, links, and digital sticky notes, of course, present my thoughts the way I want. Right again! Now, you're looking for a past idea you thought was just genius. Only you could find... Oh, there it is. Drawing board or... Miro. Our finished and unfinished work lives in one place. And he's one. Join over 60 million people getting ideas noticed in Miro Brainstorms. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.